Listening to American Indian Airwaves. From Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. It's a beautiful day in Akizapa. Today on American Indian Airwaves, Treaty and Land Defenders of the Sacred Black Hills and the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 and the Los Angeles Board of Education of Los Angeles Unified School District amends its policies and procedures for charter schools threatening the only international indigenous school in Los Angeles County, California. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright The lone blue elk in the black of the night You can hear, you can hear The whisper in the valley mm-hmm. And you know when come a cunny blows To the bar who drum In the first segment of today's program here on American Indian Airwaves, we speak with Nick Tilson. He's from the Oglala Lakota Nation and president and CEO of the Rapid City, South Dakota-based Indian Collective, a nonprofit organization dedicated to indigenous power through organizing, activism, philanthropy, grant-making, capacity-building, and narrative change. Nick Tilson, along with more than 15 other people, were arrested at the July 3, 2020 action, whereby over 300 indigenous peoples and supporters prevented ticket holders from taking the Keystone entrance to the Independence Day fireworks celebration speech at Mount Rushmore with President Donald Trump. Mount Rushmore is in the heart of the Hesapa, the sacred Black Hills. Tilson was charged with two felonies and three misdemeanors, where if convicted on all accounts, he could face up to 12 years in prison. And now Nick Tilson from the Oglala Lakota Nation, CEO and president of the Indian Collective, on defending the treaty of Fort Laramie and the sacred Black Hills. Yeah, so uh, first of all, um, you know, Hamadachi, uh, Nick Tilson, the March there, watch there, not bad shoes out below. My name is Nick Tilson, um, Oglala Lakota. I greet you in my Lakota language. Warm heart felt handshake. I'm a father of four. Live in Porcupine community uh, here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. My people are from home to the Oglala Lakota people, and uh, currently president and CEO of the Indian Collective. So just wanted to put put that out there to all my uh, 
uh, any of my Lakota uh, brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles that are out there listening wanted to, I've been, I've been told, you know, make sure when you get on the radio, when you talk to the media, you speak your language when you can. Mm. And so I wanted to make sure that I have the opportunity to do that. You know, July 3rd and the action that we organized in the Fusapa was a continuation of resistance, right? Uh, you know, Lakota and indigenous people of the, the, the Khisapa, the Black Hills area, have been fighting to protect that, that area for generations. It is a long generations of resistance. And, and so, you know, at this time of political and social upheaval in the country, I wanted to be, be able to connect the indigenous people's issues um, that have been long, you know, issues of injustice in, in this country and connect them to the issues of today. And so that's that's a big part about what the, the action was about was, you know, the, the Black Hills has been a long time, a long time struggle. You know, that, that, that the, the stealing of the Black Hills and the, the violation of the 1868 and 1851 treaties, you know, that, that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And in 1980, the Supreme Court ruled that the violation of those treaties and the stealing of the Black Hills was one of the most gross violations of the U.S. Constitution and the history of the country. Yet, they didn't give us our land back. They offered a settlement for pennies on the dollar that our people have refused to, to this day. And so, you know, when you look at Mount Rushmore, the idea that they would carve the faces of these, these four white men who were colonizers, who committed genocide on indigenous people, they were slave owners, most, a lot of people don't know, uh, you know, that, that Abraham Lincoln, you know, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation and then immediately turned around and ordered the biggest mass hanging in the history of the country when he, when he, when he ordered 38 plus two Dakotas to be hung at Mankato, Minnesota after the Dakota uprising. And so, you know, when you, when you, you know, uh, people on that mountain, you know, carved in that mountain were slave owners. And the fact that, that that is coined as the shrine of democracy within the National Park Service and within the U.S. government is absurd. And so as we're at this time of political upheaval in this country, and we are talking about the dismantling of white supremacy and uh, racial injustice, and we're toppling Confederate statues, and we're toppling, toppling statues of Christopher Columbus and other colonizers. Absolutely, the conversation of Mount Rushmore and the closure of Mount Rushmore has to happen. And and so that that's what it was about. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a reigniting, reigniting the Black Hills issue, reigniting the issue of the stealing of indigenous people's lands, and directly connecting it to the work towards the, of dismantling white supremacy in America today. And the fact that one of the main people holding the microphone, perpetuating a voice of white supremacy in America, happens to be 45, the president of the United States. We weren't going we weren't gonna let the president of the United States come into our territory for a photo op. We weren't going to let that go down, especially because tribal leaders had already expressed that they were not consulted. Tribal leaders, you know, the president of the United States did not get the consent, free and prior informed consent of the tribal leaders, although Shepi Shakoi, which is a which is also 
people don't realize that that's a, that, that, that's a requirement under international law, mm. right? So under the UN de- Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, the President of the United States is required, just like he wouldn't go to Egypt, just like he wouldn't go to Saudi Arabia, just like he wouldn't go to these places without pre- prior and informed consent of those nations, he couldn't come to the land of Shetishakoi. So that day, you know, that action was multi-layered, and those were all the reasons that we did it. You know, we we did the action to illuminate those issues and bring them into mainstream society today and start having a conversation about what it means to turn land back to indigenous people and to dismantle symbols of white white supremacy, injustice, colonialism, and imperialism that exist on indigenous people's lands. And so all of these collective reasons was the, the foundation and the reasons why we did this action. And, you know, strategically, we wanted to make sure that not as many people were allowed to go celebrate. We, you know, part of civil disobedience, right, and nonviolent direct action and civil dis- disobedience, part of what that is actually about is you, you disrupt, right? You disrupt, you, you know, you disrupt and you, you do it for the purpose of illuminating issues. And so that's what we did there. You know, when, 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 when as a people made the decision as an act of civil disobedience to really go and occupy our own lands that are rightfully ours, that, that's what we did there today, that, that, that day on July 3rd. And we did it with prayer. We were completely nonviolent. We, we stood in, in resistance with one another. We smudged off. We even smudged off the police. Um, and we were confronted, like we always are, confronted with absolute militarism. We were confronted with the riot police were there in minutes. This might have been the fastest the National Guard had ever been deployed to a protest because they were there within minutes and uh, in full riot gear. And it brings up this huge issue. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, when we think about white supremacy and social and racial injustice in America, the fact that white men can storm the capitals, the state capitals of this nation with assault rifles and nobody be arrested, but yet a bunch of indigenous people can go onto their own land unarmed uh, entirely in, in, in prayer and in, in a peaceful action and 20 people are arrested and people are people like myself are charged with egregious charges like robbery, like assault of a police officer, like unlawful assembly, you know, facing almost 15, up to 15 years in prison for this action, that's egregious. And that's white supremacy at work. And see, when you talk about white supremacy and racial injustice in this country, that is it right there, alive and well in this nation, you know, below the shrine of democracy. That's why we out here, you know, we don't call it the shrine of democracy. We call it the shrine of hypocrisy. So yeah, that that's an overview of kind of you know uh, of that day. And I, and I would say this: whenever, as indigenous people, whenever we do an action, it's a ceremony. And we we, we went to the Black Hills, the Chesapa, and the ancestors were waiting for us up there. They're waiting for us. They are a part of this resistance movement right now that's happening in society today us doing these actions and going to these sacred places for the purpose of defending them, it's like making a spiritual offering. And so that's the way the whole action felt, is that, you know, all of the indigenous people there, we were 100% unified, and we knew exactly what we were doing. 
And we also wanted to, part of what we wanted to do was to inspire other indigenous people to reignite the fires that are already inside of them mm. and their movement to reclaim their land and to fight the, the, the system of injustice that we're fighting today because, because our struggles are intrins- intrinsically bound up and you know, I would say this, and this is a really important thing that I want to that I want to say as a as a Lakota, as an indigenous person, that the climate in this country currently, right now, was absolutely created by the leadership of Black Lives Matter and the movement in the movement for Black Lives. And and I want to acknowledge that because I think it's really important for us in these movements to acknowledge the shoulders in which we stand upon and that the reality is the collective liberation between black and indigenous folks is intrinsically bound up to one another. There wasn't one original sin of this nation. There was multiple original sins of this nation. And slavery and the treatment of black people was one of those things. The genocide of indigenous people and stealing of our lands was another one. And these things impact our society today. And that's why black and indigenous folks today in society whether you look at the separation between the rich and the poor, whether you look at educational outcomes, whether you look at health disparities, whether you look at the over-imprisonment, you will find black and indigenous folks at the very bottom when it comes to that. And so that's why, you know, there's a, there's a, mood, there's a time we're in a historic moment for, that can actually build power through collective liberation for all of our peoples. Nick, you touched on a lot of subjects, and I was wondering, every time we see indigenous peoples mobilize and engage in some form of action to defend the treaties, to defend the land, to defend their ceremonies, to defend their traditional way of life, there's always a response of state violence. And I was wondering if you could speak to that kind of colonial violence in retaliating against indigenous peoples, particularly within the context of the charges levied against you and the fact that if convicted, you could face up to 12 to 15 years in prison. The charges are totally bogus. And I don't believe any, I don't believe I should be charged with one of those things because that's our own land up there. (laughs) I mean, uh, you know, a 10-year-old said to me, a 10-year-old said, how is it that you go up on your own sacred land and to, to protest, and to, not, not to protest, but to stand in defense of land that was stolen from you, and then you get charged with a robbery? How is that? I was like, hey, if a 10-year-old can figure out the egregious action of that injustice, then surely anybody in society should be able to be able to as well. And you're listening to an interview with Nick Tilson from the Oglala Lakota Nation. He's CEO and president of the Indian Collective Nonprofit Organization. He's speaking on the July 3rd action, whereby over 300 indigenous peoples and supporters prevented people from participating in Donald Trump's July 4th fireworks celebration at Mount Rushmore, which is located in the sacred Black Hills. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, and now back to the interview. And I think it's, it's, as, it's as old as this judicial system. I mean, this judicial system was not created. It was not created to fight for, for to fight justice for indigenous people. 
we weren't part of the founding, the intent in which this founding, you know, the founding fathers intended this just judicial system or policing system to be used. In fact, it was used, it was the other way around. Historically, the policing system and the judicial system has been used as a facet of colonialism, imperialism, and a mechanism used to perpetuate white supremacy in society. And that's alive and well today, right now. I mean, the fact that I'm wasting, I'm facing that potentially that much time in jail is ridiculous. And it feels like I'm being targeted. It feels that, that all of this rhetoric that this country talks about in democracy, that people have freedom of speech. Guess what? If you're, if you're indigenous standing on your own land, that don't apply to you and the actions of the state and the actions of the governor and the actions of the president and the actions of our, of our local uh, of our local court system show that, that, that that's alive and well in society today. And, you know, for all of the all of the, the, the listeners out there, pay attention to what's happening in South Dakota. We have a governor out there who is digging her feet in. And she is as racist as George Wallace was racist. And it's the 21st century. And, you know, when you got nine tribes in South Dakota, 70 of the 11 poorest communities in the, in the nation are there. You know, some of the you know, larger land-based tribes are out there. And you have the lowest educational mobility of any child in America is right there in South Dakota. You have... You know, you have, a, you have a prison system in South Dakota where Native people make up 10% of the population. But for, for males, we make up 30, 37% of everybody incarcerated in South Dakota. With women, it's even worse. 51% of the people that are, of the women that are in, in prison in South Dakota are Native women. And so, you know, you look at these things that we're fighting, these are systematic, you know, systems of oppression and systematic racism at work. And these are systems that are perpetuating this. And so the fact that I'm, you know, I feel targeted. I feel, uh, I feel that this, that the system is being used against me. I feel like the same rights that are afforded, afforded a white man in this country are not being afforded to me. Um, and I'm a really, really active member of my community and contributing. I'm a father of four. I have an organization and a business on main street in Rapid city with a stone's throw from the Penny County courthouse, the same jurisdiction that is coming down on me. You know, and they do stuff like they, they do stuff like put you know put my mugshot on TV. You know, the prosecutor does something like trying to re- request an ankle bracelet for me. You know, uh, to go around. Uh, of course, the judge strikes that down and said no. <laughs> you know, because I'm a member of this community. I'm not going to flee my own people and my own community. You know, and so you know th- these are all things that you know, that are and, 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 it, and it feels shitty because at the end of the day. The number one people that will be affected, should I go to jail, are my children. I'm a father of four children, ranging from ages 16 to 10, and they will be the people that are affected. And for what? And I think the fact was that we we embarrassed the president of the United States. Now the president of the United States in the year 2020, his speech, his so-called photo op, will never be able to be mentioned in the history books without the fact that indigenous people rose up and defended our land and interrupted his racist narrative and talked about land back, talked about 
the very things that he was saying and the very speech that he was giving on the very land that he was giving had been stolen and, and, and that he was perpetuating a system of white supremacy in America and that the story in the future will be that this had become a catalyst for the Lakota to get some of the black hills back. In terms of your treatment while you were being held in jail and during this time of COVID-19, were the proper health safety protocols administered and adhered to to minimize uh, the risk of being exposed by anyone who's a carrier of COVID-19 or being exposed by someone who actually is COVID-19 test positive. And then uh, what happens next and uh, where people can get information and how they can help with the Indian Collective and the Black Hills Legal Fund? For sure. No, I appreciate that. And I'll say this too. I'll say that the things that I'm going to say about the treatment is I don't think that this is just how people are treated during COVID. I think that when I went to jail in there, I didn't see another white inmate. The only inmates I seen in that jail were Native Indigenous people. Mm. The only white people I seen when I was in jail were the corrections officers and the police. That tells you something right there. Mm. And then when you talk about how people are treated, there's nobody being tested for COVID in there. Not once. Not to mention they have a policy in place where you don't get a shower for three days. You don't even get a shower for the first three days you're in there. To imprison people, put them in jail. And then not give them a shower for three days is ridiculous. And that's their policy. You could call Penny any time and they'll tell you. <laughs> that's their policy. They put, they, we were in isolation. We were, all, we were in isolation the whole time. Individual cells, no, no, no bunking with cells together. So that part, we also were only let out for 15 minutes a day. Um, and only a few people let out at times. But there was people being denied access to toilet paper in there. There was people being access to medical care in there. There was people... You know, the, this idea that you can be locked up and then, and then you deserve a phone call? Hell no. you got to pay for that in, in jail. And the phone system and the system that they use, the comp- one of the companies that's profiteering, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, that don't even work half the time. So the, I mean, the amount of egregious acts and how folks are treated in that system is ridiculous. And it's extreme injustice. And it's actually a full investigation into the treatment of people in the jails and the penitentiaries in Pennington County and throughout the state of South Dakota, like that needs to happen. Mm. Um, because I think you will find out if done right, there are huge amounts of extreme injustices that are happening there. Uh, and I witnessed, I witnessed that firsthand, you know, even they, they use this thing called a PSA. So it's a system when you get arrested, right? They look at your history. They look at the, your history. And so they, they, they determine that they're going to do a catch and release. Uh, a book and release, or if they're going to keep you. And to my understanding, you know, obviously, I don't have a criminal history, so I scored pretty low on that. But they still made the decision to keep me over out to the, throughout the whole weekend, when when you know um, the vast majority of everybody else was was also was released. And so, uh, and our lawyers are looking into that too, because that that that, that system, and I think it's funded by the MacArthur Foundation there in Pennington County. The MacArthur Foundation is funding that. Uh, it's supposed to be an algorithm-based, right, to, to show, hey, we, we'll release people if, you know, they don't, they're not a threat to society or they're not a flea risk or uh, whatever. And, you know, I'd like to say, too, you know, being, I was arrested with, you know, 19 others and who are all facing misdemeanor charges, ranging from unlawful assembly to blocking a highway, who were, you know, warrior men, warrior women, 
uh, indigenous people and our fellow accomplices. I don't say allies, I say accomplices because they took risk and they're actively, you know, uh, they're accomplices with us in, in dismantling white supremacy. Nice. And, uh, and we're ensuring that those, that, that all of our relatives are supported. And we have received a huge uh, outpouring of support. You know, we created a fund called the Black Hills uh, Bail and Legal Fund. Um, and you can, you can actually, you know, you can actually go to that legal fund at bhlegalfund.org. It's fiscally sponsored by the Indian Collective, which is the organization I run. It's 100% Indigenous-led and governed organization dedicated to building Indigenous power. And and we knew, you know, we knew by taking a stance against the President of the United States, against the governor, against race of South Dakota, against the shrine of democracy, that, that we were going to be confronted with the colonial and white supremacist laws. And so... Uh, we created a legal fund to make sure that every single person who was arrested mm. is supported. And so, you know, if anybody out there wants to contribute to that fund, that would be great. Um, we also, at NBN Collective, you know, the, this is the beginning, not the end. We intend, uh, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in conversations with, with lawmakers. We're exploring, you know, we're exploring a piece of legislation that can potentially contribute to the, the closing of the Mount Rushmore and the returning of that land. You know, we're, we're, we're about to launch a... a you know, a, a national campaign uh, within within the next week of the different ways that for people to take action. And so we'll be able to share that share that in the future. And you can also just learn more by by following us. Um, you know, Indian you go to IndianCollective.org, and you know, Indian Collective is a really really comprehensive, multifaceted approach to building the collective power of Indigenous people. You can follow our work on there, and then you can also follow us on you know Instagram, Twitter. Facebook, uh, all of those things to, to stay up up to date on all the things the Indian Collective is doing uh, to build indigenous power and fight white supremacy. Nick, I know we're almost out of time. And again, for people that are interested in the work that Indian Collective is doing, they can visit the website at ndncollective.org. And the Black Hills Legal Fund's website is bhlegalfund.org. And Nick, there's so much more to talk about in terms of defending the treaties of Fort Laramie and uh, the traditional territories of the Oshete Shikohan. And, you know, I can't help but think about uh, all these other struggles connected to uh, defending and, and protecting Hisapa or the Black Hills, and particularly the long legacy of uranium mining and the compounded environmental, ecological, and health effects upon the people, the land, and all the relations. And and so I know uranium mining is a, uh, another part of the struggle. All of that continues to this day, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, the Homestead gold mine in its heyday was, you know, the, high, the, 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 the highest grossing gold mine in the world. And that was directly related to the stilling of the Black Hills. The very wealth in which the you know Black Hills region was built upon was built upon the stealing of indigenous people and the exploitation of those lands, and that continues today. There's still mining claims that are in the Black Hills that our people are constantly fighting. And uh, you know, before we close out here, I just wanted to say too, you know, something I think is really important, really, really important, is that as a younger generation, we recognize we recognize those who have come before us. And those who had built 
and fought the things that we're continuing to fight for to, to, to this day. And there's going to be some things that we fight in our generation that we are victorious of. You just seen, you just seen, you know, the the Redskins forced by Indigenous people to change their name. They didn't make that choice. Indigenous people came for the Washington Redskins. Indigenous people came for the NFL and forced them and to change it. And Indigenous leaders have been fighting for that for 30 years. And and so many of the things that we're being able to see in fruition today in our movements and our society has been on the shoulders of those who have come before us. And their efforts were not for nothing. And the importance of us acknowledging the resistance of our, of our ancestors is fundamentally important because it creates that spiritual connection too that they're actually with us today. You think that the folks who resisted the Black Hills and, and fought that fought the racist name, the Redskins, that they're not with us in spirit today, then you're wrong. They're actually with us. And through our work and through our, us taking action, we're able to, to make a spiritual agreement with them for that to continue. And so for the ancestors that have come before us, you know, as a, as a, as a, a person, I, I acknowledge that. And I think it's important, you know, that as we have these victories and build the collective power of our movements and our people, that we absolutely honor the, the warrior men, women, transgender, LGBTQ2S relatives, all of our relatives that have come before us. Because one day, the generations behind us will also stand on our shoulders and will be there in the spirit world and as ancestors supporting them. And to continue that, that, that's fundamentally important part of being indigenous. And that was Nick Tilson from the Oglala Lakota Nation. He's president and CEO of the Rapid City South Dakota nonprofit organization, Indian Collective. He's speaking on the possible incarceration of 12 to 15 years for the felony and misdemeanor charges resulting from the July 3rd successful action whereby over 300 indigenous peoples and supporters helped block participation of Donald Trump's Independence Day fireworks celebration at Mount Rushmore, which is in the heart of the Black Hills. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back.
The Black Hills Song by Earl Bullhead off the album Keeper of the Drum here on American Indian Airwaves. In the next segment of today's program, we go to the heart of the Tongva, Gabarino, and Tatabium nations in Los Angeles County, California, whereby this past July 9th, the Los Angeles Board of Education of the Los Angeles Unified School District voted on a new charter policy to amend its Los Angeles Unified School District policies and procedures for charter schools that potentially threaten the only international indigenous school within Los Angeles County, California. In this next episode, I speak with Marcos Aguilar. He's co-founder and executive director of Academia Sommelias del Pueblo and head of the School of Anahuameca International University of the possible implications of the Los Angeles County Board of Education's recent decision to amend its new charter policies and how it could affect the only international indigenous school in the heart of the Tongva Gabarino Tataviam nations. And now, Marcos Aguilar. On July 9th, the Los Angeles Unified School District Board of Education uh, voted to consider a policy that was uh, proposed by the superintendent of, of uh, education in, in that district that responded to Assembly Bill 1505 uh, to establish charter policies and um, basically around renewal and uh, new charter proposals. Um, organized by, by uh, Anahuacalmecac and through the work of the Indigenous Education Now Coalition as well, uh, we were able to organize American Indian tribal leader opposition to the district's consideration of that policy due to a lack of any sort of consultation with uh, Indian tribes or organizations as required by federal education law. And so our, our, our sentiments were made known at the, at the uh, board meeting that was held to consider the policy, but they were not uh, given the, the, I think, the depth and, and importance that uh, they should have by the Board of Education. Marcos, how did the board vote? And then within the context of the UN's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, what does it mean by free, prior, and informed consent, especially when we talk about the July 9th vote? Well, the the policy establishes uh, how the district will evaluate um, a charter proposal, a charter school proposal, or a charter school's uh, success or, or failure for, for either a proposed idea or for performance. And what's really key in this new uh, law is that the district defines community impact and by extension is defining community. How do you get to define those things on behalf of uh, sovereign tribes, land-based tribes, and indigenous communities of indigenous peoples in, in a migrant context without consulting our organizations and our tribal leaders. So the, the, the district is deciding whether or not a charter school is demonstrably unlikely to serve the interests of the entire community in which the school is proposing to locate. I would argue that most public schools fail to serve American Indian community and would fail to meet the terms of this definition of community impact. Um, and, and additionally, the district determines what the fiscal impact 
of a charter school, uh, new or renewed, is. And, and, and that's interesting to us because uh, since 2017 and 18, Anahuacalmecac has raised the issue of the, the district's failure to consult with American Indian tribes and organizations as they should in order to measure the fiscal needs and impact of their own federal funding programs and their, their service or lack of service uh, of our children in the school district. One of the things that I uh, un- discovered in, in my research and preparation for this uh, LAUSD board meeting is that more children, more American Indian, uh, recognized American Indian children are being enrolled in charter schools by their parents than, than the previous years. Almost 50% of American Indians, recognized American Indian students are enrolled. And that's, those are students that have a 506 form, which is a, a, a federal form acknowledging them as American Indian tribal members or descendants of tribal members in the American Indian education program. And that's pretty significant. And that means that this policy is impacting almost half of all of the American Indian students in LAUSD. Uh, and that's not even to mention all of the indigenous students of migrant indigenous nations that we all know are uh, very numerous here in Los Angeles. What are some of the additional implications by the board's actions and, and what's going to be the response to last week's um, action? Well, our focus is not on picking apart the charter policy, which is the game that the school board members uh, and the superintendent started to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this isn't about deciding whether, you know, we want red pencils or blue pencils. This is about the core right to free and informed consent and to tribal consultation uh, of Indian tribes and organizations and communities, which we are including as the, the internationally recognized right of urban indigenous communities to consultation as well, so that the district can demonstrate a basic respect for the, the right to self-determination of indigenous peoples. This should be through a formal, open consultation process that transparently and prior to adoption shares proposed policies that aim to define our community or define how anything in education impacts our community or our children, and that may limit the educational options options of indigenous children in Los Angeles. So we're centered on the issue of consultation. And in that context, our Indigenous Education Now Coalition, which is made up of uh, the uh, local land-based tribes and in leadership, uh, as well as the uh, California Native Vote Project and other tribal organizations that are ra- that have filed a Office of Civil Rights complaint against the LA Unified School District for its violation of our right to consultation. Marcos, talk a little bit more about that April 21st uh, press release by the Indigenous Education Now Coalition, whereby a formal complaint was filed with the United States Department of Education Office of Civil Rights against the Los Angeles Unified School District for its failure to comply with federal law requiring tribal consultation with indigenous peoples and indigenous organizations. What kind of traction has occurred since then? Yeah, our, our, our complaint centers around the lack of consultation as one of the most egregious 
examples of the discrimination against American Indian and Indigenous students by the district. And the Office of Civil Rights is investigating that currently, and we've been in communication with them. One of the interesting uh, knee-jerk reactions that the district did, uh, which was not solicited by us, was that they initiated a uniform complaint procedure, uh, internal a review of our complaint based on the same press release that you're talking about, where they just simply notified us, hey, we got your press release, we're going to investigate ourselves and we'll get back to you. Uh, but because of COVID, we'll get back to 90 days or, or we'll begin this 90 days after schools reopen. And now, since we all just heard this week that schools will not reopen for another year, that means that the district has now given itself up to 18 months to respond to our urgent call for consultation. So the, so the district gets to self-police itself, um, self-investigate itself, and in, we're talking about um, you know the work and coalition members um, advocating for the right of consultation and free prior informed consent. Why not um, uh, you know the ability for the school and coalition members to actually have a commission or agency that operates as a co-equal? with the school district, especially when it comes to the education for indigenous peoples and, and Native Americans and American Indians, because I can't help it in listening to you think about thinking about all the different forms of institutionalized racism and forms of oppression that exist, whether it be, you know, by the policies that are administered uh, by the state or by the school board, but also um, students' experiences with uh, with their teachers and how they teach the content based on the California State's curriculum standards and how those standards also have all these multi-layers of forms of racism embedded in the, the, the content that's taught there. Your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that that is the reason why you know, for better or worse, the federal education law in the rewriting of the Elementary and Secondary Act of, of Education, mm-hmm. Education Act, has incorporated the, the recognition of the need for tribal consultation mm-hmm. and that there is a unique right to mm-hmm. language, to culture right. uh, that that is uh, supportive of the academic goals of the families and of the nation. But I think and what we've found is that this is a national crisis. This crisis of the lack of consultation in education specifically is a national crisis that is not being accounted for by the U.S. Department of Education and its own internal reviews of Title VI programs across the country does not account for the lack of consultation and has not adequately um, uh, enforced it. And and so we're we're seeing Los Angeles as a very key area, both because of the complexities of the local land-based tribes and the history here, as well as the uh, the huge population of urban Indian uh, uh, tribal members that have relocated, either through the relocation programs or uh, voluntarily, um, and the, the, uh, the immigrant indigenous populations that are here that represent communities of tens of thousands, uh, if not more. And, and all of that has to be taken into account by a district who 
since its foundations was established as a branch of white supremacy in, in the state of California that was established specifically to create a separate and, and unequal system. And that even in the context of uh, civil rights legislation fails to account for the distinct needs, not the same needs, the distinct needs of indigenous uh, students and, and children and the distinct rights to, uh, to language and culture in education that, um, that are born uh, of, uh, of sovereignty and of the self-determination of, of the original peoples of this continent. The district has no means by which to grapple with that. And so I, I strongly believe, and from our practice and perspective in Anahuacalmecac, not speaking for our whole coalition, but I strongly believe that the federal government's uh, provisions for a autonomous uh, oversight and control by an autonomous body of, uh, of Indian tribes and organizations that, that can control the funding that is supposed to go to our children and is supposed to support these unique needs and these unique aspirations uh, is what is needed in, in Los Angeles. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves, an interview with Marcos Aguilar, co-founder and executive director of Academia Somalias del Pueblo and head of the Anahuamaca International University. He's speaking on the recent vote by the Los Angeles Board of Education of the Los Angeles Unified Schools District to modify a new charter policy that could possibly terminate schools like the Anahuamaca International University. And now back to the interview. Is it is controlling the funding enough or is actually uh, a mandate to provide adequate and sufficient funding to provide the quality type of education that's necessary? Well, the mandate exists. Okay. You know, federal law is very clear and it's actually, you know, if taken at face value, um, quite good. Uh, I I would argue further, I would say that, you know, we would want even more than what federal law accounts for. But if all you did was what was promised in federal law, uh, then, then we'd have a substantially different e- educational ecosystem for youth who are facing the highest rates of teen suicide right. uh, in, in, in the United States, for, for youth who are facing invisibility because they aren't even accounted for. They don't even count when they're counting students oftentimes to identify the needs of the students. Uh, for, for youth whose languages are invisible, the district has absolutely no count of how many indigenous students speak an indigenous language as a first language at home, or even as a second language at home, which is a reality for Quiche, for Cancobal, for Zapoteco, for uh, so many other indigenous languages that are still uh, spoken in the, in, the, in the restaurants and in the gardens and in the uh, busways uh, of Beverly Hills, because we are the people who clean those yards and clean those restaurants and serve those meals. And, and so the fact that these languages exist in the realities of the city, but not in the realities of the lives of our children in the schools is a crime. Well, and, and not only that, it's, uh, uh, the indigenous folks that speak their indigenous language first, you know, does the school district recognize that as people's first languages and therefore learning, say, Spanish and, and or English is actually their second and third language, which easily qualifies 
those indigenous folks is right bilingual or possibly even trilingual and so do they get credit for that because part of right uh the state curriculum is that you know students in the public school system have to take quote unquote uh, a certain number of second language courses. So as does this, as a school even address that, uh, which has also been a longstanding issue with public education and indigenous peoples? Well, we know it doesn't because our school in Awakalmeca is the mm-hmm. only school that teaches any indigenous language in all of Los Angeles Unified School District. Mm-hmm. And we know that California state law, uh, as recently adopted, allows for as few as 20 parents to request a language program in their maternal language. Mm. But that's not being exercised. And so we want to be able to raise that to the attention of the community as well, that we have rights that can be exercised and that we should take that to the fullest limit. But look, this is what I think. If the district is an eight or nine billion dollar operation with an annual budget, uh, regardless of its perennial deficits, because it's in a continual state of deficit, uh, and 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 it's mostly in addressing the needs that are not indigenous. The, so the people who work in the district who are not indigenous peoples are whose needs are being satisfied by those budgets. But the reality is that we should be thinking holistically about a billion-dollar budget mm-hmm. to be able to invest in the eco- educational e- ecological resources needed for indigenous youth throughout the Los Angeles Unified School District. This is not about a $1,000 grant. This is not about a $10,000 program. This isn't even about a million-dollar initiative. This is really about the core of the foundations of the people that are originals to this land and the right to be able to educate in, in full respect of the self-determination of indigenous people. So what happens next? And then uh, talk about uh, the school uh, the work of uh, what the school's been doing and what it has to offer for listeners um, in the area because uh, people may or may not realize it or maybe they have forgotten the school's been around uh, for, I believe, uh, 20, over 20 years now. And so it's the only indigenous uh, school within right the Los Angeles County area and perhaps even farther. And, and it's a staple part of the indigenous community throughout the region. Yeah, and Anahuacalmeca uh, is also an international baccalaureate world school, and so we offer a curriculum that is that is that takes into account the fact that indigenous peoples are international, yeah. that, that by definition, indigenous peoples and native nations uh, ought to be able to interact in an international context. Uh, and and uh, recognizing the fact that in our communities, most of the urban indigenous uh, students are of national origins uh, of, from Latin America. And so recognizing that was important to be able to contextualize what indigenous uh, education means in Los Angeles is by definition international. We offer a t- transitional kinder to 12th grade program. Um, and in the 11th and 12th grade, uh, our program is specifically designed around indigenous studies. And we call it the Indigenations Scholars Program. And our students graduate with a diploma, a high school diploma that recognizes their pathway in Indigenous studies in our school as well. Uh, We have uh, some of the most well-recognized and and respected uh, educators in uh, both in Chicano and Chicano studies, as well as in Indigenous studies involved in the creation of our curriculum and in our programs. 
and um, and we account for uh, first and foremost the community that's built around the children, uh, the community of parents and the community of teachers, and how we together are raising our children. Because we've been around for two decades, we're able to uniquely say that we've actually raised children from kindergarten through twelfth grade uh, that have gone on to college and and are are um, are doing very well. Uh, that 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 have not had to deal with the level of colonization and linguistic that exists in public schools, what I refer to as government schooling. Mm-hmm. And so it gives our communities an option to not be um, indoctrinated in a way that the, the very basic expectation of government schooling in California is designed to do. Government schooling in California is designed to assimilate children. It is designed to indoctrinate children, and it is designed to create uh, one mentality that although expressed through the individual freedoms that Americans are used to and will defend, uh, you know, uh, uh, blood, sweat, and tears with, uh, it does not account for the, the, the freedoms of the indigenous peoples and our educational system does in Anahuacalmeca. And Marcos, is there a website that listeners can access uh, about information regarding the school? Yeah, I'd like to uh, share two websites. So first is Dignidad.org, D-I-G-N-I-D-A-D.org is our school website and our organization. And uh, I'd also like to share the petition for the Indigenous Education Now Coalition, uh, which is on the California Native Vote Project website. And that's at canativevotes.org forward slash take action. canativevotes.org forward slash take action and we're we're actually uh looking to collect stories uh of of the type of discrimination and and um and experiences that american indian students have had within the district uh, or even in independent uh charter schools uh, because we want to make sure that the learning environment for all indian children and indigenous children is uh, a positive and healthy one the moment of silence is over And that was Marcos Aguilar, co-founder and executive director of Academia Somalias del Pueblo and head of the School of the Anahuameca International University, located in the heart of the Tongva, Gabarino, and Tataviam nations. He was speaking on the Los Angeles Board of Education of the Los Angeles Unified School District's amendment in changes to a new charter policy designed to terminate schools like the Anawamaka International University. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests for the hour, Nick Tilson of Indian Collective and Marcos Aguilar, co-founder and executive director of Academia Somalias del Pueblo. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Earl Bullhead, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time.
against our fears Try not to become what we've endured Wearing our souls on the thread The moment of silence is over